Welcome to Granddaddy Issues. This is a podcast dedicated to changing the conversation about aging, fostering innovation, and bridging the gap between generations. I think we should point out to our zero listeners of this podcast that I'm currently wearing like the free iPhone headphones that come. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, when they they do like pictures of people doing podcasts, they all have on like fancy ass noise headphones and everyone's like looking really intense. Like this is literally like we're in your apartment in Dorchester, America. Yeah. Like, not, maybe we'll be able to circle Sponsored back. Sponsored by Dorchester, Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if anyone is listening who does anything to do with the chili cook-off, I would love to be a judge uh, this coming year with my roommate. So that's, uh, can't <laughs> say my address, but actually the fan mail will start to come in. <laughs> Please reach out. Please reach out. For Claire to be a I would like one of those aprons. Cook-off. Those yeah. aprons are fire, also, man. Also, I think. Oh, great. Granddaddy Issues Season 1, Episode 1 could not be more excited for our first interview guest. So let's start off. I think it would be better than having us introduce you for you to just introduce yourself. Yep. So, my name is Caitlin Coyle, and I am a research professor at UMass Boston in the Gerontology Institute. And I will, I guess I'll just tell you a little bit about my background and how I came to the very unique Mm -hmm. field of gerontology. Mm -hmm. So, I am a native Ohioan. I graduated from Ohio State University with a degree in psychology and journalism, actually. Hmm. yeah, dual degree actually, and it was there actually that I got really interested in in aging. So I did. I took a psychology of aging course, and at the time knew that if I wanted to do anything with a psychology degree, I needed to do some research if I wanted to go to grad school. So I got involved in a behavioral medicine lab where I collected. I sort of piled up with a doctoral student there, and she essentially said, "If you help me collect my data, I will let you write a paper out of it." So I spent a lot of time hanging out at an outpatient cardiac rehab, collecting data from older Mm. adults who'd recently experienced a cardiac event. And we assessed a lot of coping mechanisms, and my particular interest was in gender differences. And we also collected some information around, like, religiosity. But anyway, that's uh, where I was like, okay, I like research. I like old people. What do I do now? (laughs) And that particular professor said, have you ever thought about gerontology? I said, no, what is that? I Googled it and I essentially found two programs, USC and and UMass Boston. And I said, I can't do the West Coast. So UMass Boston it is. (laughs) And so that's what led me out here to Massachusetts. And I got my PhD in gerontology here at UMass, where I did my dissertation on social isolation and chronic disease. So again, sort of carrying through that chronic disease piece. I graduated in 2014 and I took a postdoc at the Yale School of Public Health, and I was there for two years. And then for a combination of personal and professional reasons, I returned to UMass to work full-time here um, in the Gerontology Institute, where I've been for about three years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's been three years. I know. Kind of wild. 
Yeah. So that's sort of my background professionally, I would say. And I can tell you about some of the work we do here at the center, if that's helpful or what's... Well, I think one of the things that a lot of people are interested in is the age-friendly movement. It's such a buzzword these days. And obviously you have done work on the Age-Friendly Boston Project. And so we were hoping you could tell us kind of a a little bit more about that research Mm -hmm. and the cool initiatives that are going on. The cool, hip, fun things. All right. What are the kids doing? So, well, I'll get, so age-friendly, yes, it's very much a buzzword. It's very much a trend. Some call it a movement, if you will. And uh, yeah, we have been, so I guess I will say that I think of ourselves, myself, Jan Mutchler, and our center here as being sort of um, ahead of that trend. Because back in 2012, we started doing community needs assessments here in Massachusetts, where yeah. we were going to individual cities and towns in response to them saying, hey, our population's aging. We don't know what to do about it. Can you help us collect some information that will help us plan for that future? So we started doing that in 2012, way before Age Friendly was even on anybody's tongue. And But then I, you know, as things have have moved and I think you guys know and probably your audience will know but you know that framework was developed by the World Health Organization and it, but it really is rooted in environmental gerontology it's rooted in sort of the person environment fit this idea that people's you know individual capacity has to match their physical environment in order mm-hmm. for them to be successful um so it's really sort of it is rooted in in that kind of theory and has really ramped up in the last few years especially with AARP's involvement here yeah. in the United States and North America So that needs assessment work kind of has morphed into people calling it age-friendly work. But really, when I think of age-friendly, I think that no matter what you call it, if a community is recognizing population aging and is taking steps to address that, regardless of what they call it, it's Mm age-friendly in spirit and in theory. Yeah. Um, And so that's my little personal pitch, I guess, (laughs) that, you know, I think there's a lot of – so anyway, I'll say that. Um, So we do have worked now with about 40 cities and towns in Massachusetts around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the largest probably is the Age-Friendly Boston Project, which we've been a part of now for, I think, I don't know, four or five years. And really as a research partner um, since day one. And that's been, I think of it as a national model, a national example of the benefit and the possibilities that can happen when there is sort of a public academic partnership Mm -hmm. in these initiatives, because really Boston has invested in that relationship and now I think has a strong initiative that's really based on information that they gathered from the community as well as best practices from what we know and with evidence-based interventions. Um, And so anyway, I think there is just a really solid example and that's one of my goals for the coming year. Um, is to really document that experience because I think a lot of communities could really learn from it. But in addition to Boston, we've worked with smaller communities all around the state on their age-friendly initiatives, and they some are totally resident-led, some are totally mayor-led. Mm. <laughs> a lot of them are in between. So I think, as you say, you know, we've been doing this work for a while, and I think we have seen lots of different approaches to it, um, some things that work and some things that don't. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and maybe you could talk about some of the initiatives in the age-friendly movement in Boston specifically. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a whole bathroom mapping thing, yep. which is pretty interesting. Yep. You guys just did that civic engagement. Mm-hmm. So any highlights of... Yeah, So yeah, sure. Um, so age-friendly Boston, we did the needs assessment. We had over 3,600 survey respondents. We did 25 listening sessions in every neighborhood. We had everything translated into six different languages. We did listening sessions in multiple languages. 
because we really did, I think, a pretty bang up job as yeah, far as, yeah. as trying to really uh, reach a large urban diverse community. Yeah. And as a result of that, I think our action plan is built on some pretty strong insight. And so one of those things we heard about was people were not satisfied. Public bathrooms. I mean, when we think about an age-friendly community, people's ability, you know, their comfort level with being out and about is affected by whether yeah. or not they know if there's a public restroom. And so that was something we heard. It was a survey result. If I remember correctly, it was over half of our survey respondents mm-hmm. said that they were unsatisfied with the amount of public restrooms in the city. So as a result, the city of Boston, in partnership with the Office of New Urban Mechanics, yeah. mapped yeah. all public well they, i was they mapped public bathrooms that are associated with any fire and police departments public libraries in boston and any of the restrooms that are affiliated by the city so there's some i think down by the harbor and stuff like that that are maintained by the city can you go into a police department and use the bathroom apparently wow oh, yeah yeah so Good that information know. <laughs> i know i know, I know. That information is available on the website, but it's also available at 311, which is the city's sort of information yeah. line. So you, and anytime you can call 311 and say, I'm in Back Bay, where's my closest wow. public restroom? So and they'll cool. tell I you. I know this. This is amazing. I think it, not to get too off topic, but the 311 thing is really interesting. Like who actually uses 311? Mm-hmm. Um, just that's a totally different thing. But that whole system that Boston has um, where you can call – it's interesting to look at the demographics of people who are actually calling in to 311 yeah. and, like, who's noticing – like, you notice the pothole and then do you actually make the call or mm-hmm. do you go yeah. online? Um, and I think a lot of people don't really know about yeah, it, too. Yeah, people mm-hmm. – I didn't know – I mean, I know 311 exists, but I would never think to call them to mm-hmm. ask Three, them – 411 about 311. <laughs> to ask them where a bathroom is, but that's interesting. Yeah. Right. The cool thing about that, too, is that it's, like, for people of all ages and abilities. That's right. Like yeah. I, I, this has happened to me, like, recently where I was in, like, a CVS or something, or maybe it was, like, a Walgreens, and I mm-hmm. kind of had to use the bathroom, and there wasn't – was They will not let so you. counterintuitive. But, well, um, and people who have chronic diseases, like, Crohn's or – Kids, even. Yeah. I mean, you're out with a kid, yeah. and they have to – when they have to use the restroom, they have to go. Yeah. So, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, that's a clear example of something that we heard about through the H-Friendly Boston Initiative, but it's benefiting the city yeah. the city yeah. as a whole. Another highlight, I guess, would be the Civic Academy. So that is a program that we just completed our second round of that program. And that was in response to one of the survey questions, which was about people's satisfaction with the extent to which older adult voices are in policymaking in the mm-hmm. city. And people were sort of saying, no, we don't really think that you know, we're being heard. And so the city um, wanted to develop an, a mechanism for people to get involved and to be aware of some of the advocacy opportunities um, at the city level, but also in general, educate people about policy processes. And so that was a curriculum that we at UMass partnered with the city to develop. It's a five-week course, about 30 hours. It's by application. And it's sort of the two goals of it. One is, as I said, to sort of just familiarize people with how policy gets made at the city, Mm -hmm. state and local government, city, state and federal government, but also to develop their advocacy skills. So we do things like how to to graduate from the Civic Academy, you actually have to give a two-minute elevator speech to a policymaker. Mm-hmm. Um, not to the per- person live, but in the course, you mm-hmm. know, that's – and it's videotaped and, and things yeah. like that. And so it's really to develop their skills and their confidence in doing that and trying to make themselves advocates. And, mm-hmm. and as a result, we've got two cohorts of about 50 people who've completed that wow. course. And, and so you can imagine that sort of building a little bit of an army of advocates, yeah. um, which is great because I think there are lots of advocates around disability, lots of advocates around children. And maybe we don't always see older adults in that realm. And so that's Mm -hmm. a really great program. Yeah. Yeah. And 
We're doing a lot with older workers, actually, as well. Um, in the fall, there'll be an older worker workshop where there'll be sort of skill building activities as well as a job fair specifically to workers over 50. Um, and that's in response to a white paper that Jan Mutchler wrote as a result of the Age-Friendly Boston Project. And so that's a direct outcome of that. And I guess the, the last thing I'll say is um, we're just finishing an evaluation of the Age and Dementia-Friendly Business Program mm-hmm. that the city of Boston has developed. And so they something that I think other cities and towns are doing, this sort of designation of how can my business be more age and dementia-friendly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, things like, are the aisles wide enough? Is there signage? Do my staff know how to communicate with someone who's hard of hearing or maybe has a Mm -hmm. cognitive impairment? That kind of thing. So the city piloted in two neighborhoods of Boston. They piloted this designation and they partnered with the Main Streets organization, which is sort of a a business development organization. And so they've certified, I think, over 25 businesses. And they're going back right now to sort of check on them and sort of see how things are going and what kind of changes have been made and, and how to make the program more sustainable. And so we've helped with that. Um, and that's been really interesting because, yeah, we heard some cool things. I mean, there was a convenience store guy, um, as a result of the certification, he wanted to get a chair because people come in to his convenience store and they either – there's he has a Western Union in his convenience store where people send money to their mm-hmm. family and things like that. And sometimes there's a delay and people have to wait around. So he, he bought a chair so that people could sit while they waited. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a really small thing. Yeah. And a convenience store that maybe would never have thought of themselves yeah. as age-friendly. But yeah. when you talk to these folks, I mean, they talk about the loyalty of older customers. And anyway, it, it's been a, an interesting experience. So hopefully that'll continue. And Yeah. 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 That's cool. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Should we delve into some? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so we're kind of like we love all the research stuff, but we also want to make this – Fun and exciting yeah. for our huge audience. What are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> no, my research isn't fun and exciting. No, no, no. But so one thing that has happened to me and Claire is we've been in rooms with older adults where mm-hmm. we people talk about ageism all the time in terms of older adults being discriminated against before their age but we've felt like we mm-hmm. it's all like reverse ageism in a sense where we're in a room and people are look at us and they say you're so young how could you know anything and how yeah. can you help us you don't understand our experiences yeah mm-hmm. and yeah our whole point is that like we live in this youth coveted society but it's not young versus old it's like we're all in this together kind of a thing <laughs> but it's interesting that people kind of divide mm-hmm. and have these yeah so we wanted to ask you if you've ever had an interesting experience with um, reverse ageism or people, because you're going into a lot of spaces giving talks and mm-hmm. what do people, do people say anything to you or? Yeah, actually, um, it happens to me in two ways. One is more of a professional way. So I um, am relatively young to have my PhD and to be in a research faculty position. And so I find myself often in communities and even in non- in other settings Introducing myself, handing people my business card, which says exactly what my title is, and they heard it in my ma- out of my mouth, and they read it in my email signature, <laughs> um, and then they'll turn around and say, "Caitlin's a graduate student at UMass yeah. Boston, oh my or gosh. she's a postdoc, or no. you know." Um, I mean, it literally happened to me two weeks ago on a phone call yeah. where someone was introducing me on a project that I'm working on with the Department of Health and Human Services, and they were saying, "You know, Caitlin's a postdoc at UMass, and she's really great, and all this stuff," and it's just like, mm, nope. Yeah. And so I think it's just a, it's a, it's a, I don't know, cognitive dissonance is the right word, but it's this idea that they're looking at me and they're seeing a young person. And so they 
don't hear what I'm saying and they just make assumptions about what my position should be as a person of my age. And so that is one area where I've experienced, I think, reverse ageism, although maybe it's just ageism ageism in general (laughs) and maybe it's just obnoxious people. But I think that's definitely something that I constantly am working to manage, I guess. Yeah. On the public side and on the more like in the projects that I do and the work that I do, I certainly experience it. I there was I teach some classes occasionally and in the community. I also do a lot of presentations and a lot yeah. of workshops and things like that. So I do find myself in in audiences with audiences that are much older than me. And typically it's never an issue, I will say. I make a lot of jokes about it. I'm a young person studying aging or, you know, this kind of just acknowledging the fact that it's not about I'm not speaking to you as somebody who knows what it's like to get old. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking to you as an expert in gerontology Mm -hmm. and I've gone to school and dedicated my career and my life to this work. Yeah. So I do know what I'm talking about because what I'm talking about is research. What I'm talking about is theory. What I'm talking about is evidence and the strategy. I'm not talking to you here about my personal experience, um, that kind of thing. So I try to make that distinction as much as I can and try to head it off before it becomes an issue and not try to pretend like I know anything about what it's like to be 85. But I can tell you what we know from the research and I Mm can tell you what we know from the academic side. So that's one strategy. But the other, it did happen to me very recently. And there was a woman in in a class I was teaching and she actually said it was the last day of the class. We were, we did an evaluation, but we also had an opportunity for people to vocalize their feedback. And she wrote this on her evaluation as well, but she did. She said that she would like to see more instructors that look like her and that she said, you look like you're 12 years old to me. Harsh. Wow. And so while I understand the value of representation in people who are in positions of authority or power, I get that, you know, political thing. I get that. But I also think that we both have things to teach each other Yeah. in that situation. Yeah. So I think of it in the reverse. If I was taking a class with a professor who was in their 70s and I said that to them, I said something like, I would like to see more professors that look like me. You look like you're ancient. That's, <laughs> you would never that ever would, say that. that. I would yeah. never say that That's, and it would never be acceptable for me to mm-hmm. say that. And yeah. so I find it difficult to believe that it's acceptable in the reverse. Mm-hmm. As I said, I'm coming to them as not somebody who can talk about relate to them. That's yeah. not what I'm there for. I'm there to share my expertise. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's that was an interesting thing. And I will say that I was offended. <laughs> yeah, that's um, offensive. Yeah. But, but it, you know, I don't know. It's like, what do you do yeah. about that? I, also, how many, I mean, just the percent of the population, like the degree that you have, having a PhD is a pretty small percent of the population. And yeah. then a PhD in gerontology is even smaller. So who do they expect is going to come in as an expert and give them the research and theory and evidence like just numbers wise it may not make sense to have someone who looks like them because it's a newer field and there's not as many phd gerontologists Mm -hmm. out there right right and so i think it's it is it's a it's a hard it's a fine line to find yourself in a position where you're teaching about aging and you're not but to make that distinction of i'm not here to teach you from my life experience Mm -hmm. although i have a lot of it (laughs) even though i'm only you know 34 but I'm here to teach you from my expert place. I think that's an interesting thing, though, that people – I sometimes I feel like older people, when you are coming in and saying, I'm presenting this research or whatever, a lot of people, they bring it to themselves. And they're like, well, this is my experience. And it's like, that's okay. That's your experience. So let's yeah. talk about the population experience. It's, like, it's almost like people – 
you know, I tell people what I do and they're like, oh my gosh, well, let me tell you about my grandma. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. like, yeah. Ah. Or they're <laughs> right. like, why do you think that? <laughs> right. Yeah. It just, it, a lot of times I feel like people take it to such a minute personal level yeah. that it's like, that's not yeah. particularly helpful in the sure. research space. Yeah. What I get a lot, I feel like, is people thinking that I work in activities or something. Yeah, like you're like, a senior. Oh, so you do bingo with how's that going or how's the crafts these days and yeah. I'm like no I still don't do that yeah. <laughs> it's like from like family members you know sure. like yeah. Which I think is indicative of how we as a society view aging right yeah. yeah. because if I yeah. said I worked with kids people would they would know exactly what that means for the most part they would value it they mm-hmm. would not yeah. ask questions about it and they would think those crafts are developmentally yeah sparking the ingenuity yes. of the future yeah. you are god's doing god's yeah. work like you they were would educating treat you, the if youth. you were the activities director yeah. at, at a daycare center you would be considered really doing wonderful things mm-hmm. and so i don't understand why it's not the same on the flip yeah um, in That's terms of so, uh, yeah and yeah. i yeah i think of this may this is gonna sound real cliche but you know i i make the joke we're all aging you know everybody's aging yeah. which is true but more than that we're all growing yeah. Whether I'm this, whether I'm 34, whether I'm 84, like I'm advancing in my life mm-hmm. in yeah. some way. And so I don't think it's really that different if we think about it in that way. Yeah. But yeah, so that's uh, – reverse ageism is real for sure. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the other things we had on here is aging stereotypes. Or do you have a different one in mind that you want to oh. talk about? What's your subjective age? Oh possibly? yeah, yeah. I think that's What's your number? Because, yeah. <laughs> so I actually like hate this question. <laughs> I, it comes out. I should. <laughs> I hate this question. <laughs> tell us why. Because I will tell you why. Mostly because I do actually believe the statement "age is just a number." Yeah. Like I think of myself as Caitlin. I am who I am. I don't think of myself as being a particular age. I don't think of myself as being any other thing than myself. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. that to me, that's what's most important is to identify. I don't really care what your subjective age is. I want to know how you feel as a person or like what is your goals? What are your what's your past? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I really I, I don't like the whole subjective age thing. However, I will say that I recently had a child <laughs> and that experience, that life experience, like course event, really aged you. <laughs> put, it put me very much in touch with my mortality, mm-hmm. like in a big mm-hmm. way, like thinking about and maybe it's because I'm crazy or morbid or something, but it connected me with my mortality in a way that I wasn't expecting. Mm-hmm. And that has changed how I feel about my life and about myself and about how I spend my time. Mm-hmm. And I think that as I get older, those kinds of things will only continue to happen in more. I think this was like the first time mm-hmm. as yeah. a younger person yeah. where I was like, oh, I thought I can see the end. But like, <laughs> you know, I, there's, this, the person, end is near. there's no. this person who in theory yeah. will be alive when I'm not alive, yeah. you know, yeah. and she's part of me and she will be here when I'm not here. And that's weird to think yeah. about. And it's not yeah. something I have ever thought yeah. about as a young person. But I can imagine that those events will continue to accumulate. And um, I think that that actually plays a really big role in how people view their aging process. Uh-huh. So. No, I like it. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the main stereotypes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, so maybe if you could talk about some of the aging stereotypes that maybe bother you or some that you, I mean, there's always like this, the typical older adult in the corner kind of like mm-hmm. posed in on websites or just mm-hmm. in photos. Staring out like the a, window. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's very unrealistic, mm-hmm. but in so many other ways than just that. And so obviously you've been in the field for mm-hmm. a while now and 
Yeah. I think there's a lot of them. And, but I think that one of the things that we deal with a lot, because a lot of our work happens in the community, it happens in senior centers, it happens with community organizations. And um, it has to do with people's values and their interests and making assumptions that based on your age, that that makes you anything like Mm -hmm. other people Mm -hmm. of your age. (laughs) So it's the same thing as saying, okay, you're in your 30s, so therefore you must value these kinds of things and you must like this kind of thing and this kind of thing must connect with you. And it's the same thing people are always talking about, you know, programs and how do we attract, how do we get seniors to come to our senior center? How do we get people to join our programs? How do we get people to be engaged in their communities? And there's a lot of assumptions made. The bingo example is obviously a classic where Mm -hmm. it's like, everybody loves bingo. Of course, everybody loves bingo, you know, that kind of thing. Because perhaps the seniors that go to that senior center love bingo. And that makes, you know, that is true. There's not like, I'm not arguing that that's true. I am arguing that there are a lot of seniors that aren't in that senior center that like a lot of things that aren't bingo. The same way I'm arguing that not every 34-year-old likes values family or values having children or cares about education or cares about uh, volunteering, you know, the things Mm -hmm. that I care about. And that makes me – so I think that that assumption that once you hit a certain age that clearly you must value your free time and you must value your grandchildren, you know, that kind of thing, um, I think those assumptions bother me Mm -hmm. a little bit because – But I think it's interesting. I Like like those assumptions get made at any age. Those get placed on you. Sure. Mm -hmm. Which – coming up on 30 I'm like becoming more aware of those assumptions right. Claire and I are, yeah people like, are we too old for this nail polish color like, <laughs> yeah, right like, no I'm not I'm feeling sassy <laughs> yeah and that that should never leave you yeah you know you should be able to be 67 and say I'm feeling sassy today I'm getting black nails or yeah. whatever you decide yeah. to do and that because that's who you are and that's yeah. what brings you joy and I think that one of the mistakes that communities sometimes make and is that they forget that just because you're aging doesn't mean you need people to do things for you, yeah. but rather what is actually more – can be more successful with respect to that kind of thing, like outreach and getting people to join, is empowering people to uh, participate mm-hmm. in a way that makes them feel good. So, you know, instead of spending all of this time and effort in planning the perfect watercolor class, why don't you spend that time and energy figuring out what it is that the people in your community care to do mm-hmm. and give them the tools and the resources to get that going? Yeah. Because yeah. for all you know, it could be Reiki or mm-hmm. whatever, yeah. Yeah. scuba diving. And so I think that that is – that's where that assumption and that aging stereotype sort of meets the road mm-hmm. with respect yeah. to how – like why do we care about those assumptions? Um, and I yeah. think it's because it, it can have a real impact on people's ability to – feel like they're successful Mm -hmm. um, in their aging services. And um, so anyway, and that's not true for everybody, but I do think that it's sort of this idea that we have to provide the best aging services. We have to provide the best Mm -hmm. aging programs. And it's like, maybe you need to work with the people who are on the other end of this. Um, And it's not so much, you know, a provision of service, but rather sort of uh, working together of sorts. Yeah. 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 Everyone wants to stay relevant. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, another one that kind of gets us a lot is just elderly in general. And we ask people, you know, that are oh age, yeah, the word elderly. Well, like how old are your how old are your parents? Would you say that they're elderly? And they'll be like, oh, like sixty five, mm. whatever. But 
will not and then be like, no, I would, they're not a senior citizen. Mm-hmm. Like, but you just said that you think that mm-hmm. people over 65 are really old and yeah. elderly and then but their parents are not part of their yeah. their parents are special and not part of the sure. general yeah. older population. It's yeah. very interesting yeah. how people conceptualize it. It's, so it's oh, like yeah. an outdated term, but people yeah. yeah. No, it, there's very much a uh, us them kind of thing going on. I mean, yeah. we see that in our work all the time. We often, in all of our surveys, ask people about whether they go to the senior center and if they don't go, why not? And we always hear, I'm not old enough. I don't identify there. Mm-hmm. I don't need the services. Again, going back to this yeah. conception that just because I'm old, when I become old, that means I need help, mm-hmm. which is like not the same. It's not equivalent to me. Yeah. But so we ask them that. And then in the same survey, we ask them about how valuable they view senior services in their community and it's like sky high Mm -hmm. and it's this idea that like you put so much value on this organization but yet you will not even Mm -hmm. consider going in the parking lot yeah you know this sort of like again sort of a cognitive dis like i don't i'm not there it's not for me but it might be for you that'd be nice you know (laughs) sort of yeah (laughs) whatever very isolating yeah yeah well another one of our segments is we could uh pour one out for those who are no longer with us, spirits with the spirits. <laughs> oh, so, <laughs> spirits with the spirits. That's good. Sorry, this one's this one's kind of a surprise, but I just thought it, <laughs> surprise. I, surprise. Yeah. I thought of it, and I thought it was really funny. Welcome we got to some the dead zone. <laughs> well, so we study aging, mm-hmm. so people die, and that's a whole other topic, like yeah. death and dying, and how we push away from that. Yeah. Um, but sometimes I think it's nice to reminisce about somebody like an older person uh-huh. that was in your life, like a grandparent or wh- whoever. Yeah, and you just like have a drink and yeah. think about them and pour one out for wow someone that you loved yeah do i have to love them <laughs> no um no i guess <laughs> you can hate them too <laughs> well maybe you're pouring one out because you're glad they're gone <laughs> no i'm not not that far but i'm just I'm the, are okay. that you admired or that you worked with or yeah okay so am i tell you about this person or what yeah. Can I you rap about him? <laughs> yeah, just Can you freestyle rap about this person? <laughs> no, but I I, have, I can I, I have a lot of thoughts about it though. Which isn't interesting. Anyway, I'll tell you. So when I first moved to the East Coast, I started volunteering. So social isolation is obviously something that's very important to me. It's part of my research work that I do, but it's also a personal thing. And so I started volunteering as a friendly visitor when I first moved to Boston. Mm several years ago. And I think, you know, I walked into this nonprofit, I said, I want to volunteer. And I they heard my background. And I think I think what happened is that they heard my background, and they went to their most difficult <laughs> case that they've like ever had in their okay. life. And they're like, give this to Caitlin, she can <laughs> handle this guy. So I got matched with this guy, Richard, and he I think at the time was like 83. This is now like, I don't know, seven years ago or something. Yeah. Longer than that, maybe. And he was going blind. And he had been divorced. He had one son who lived in Pennsylvania who he who he had a huge falling out with, uh-huh. the details of which I still don't know entirely. But he does not – he had, was completely um, estranged from all of his family. And he lived alone in the city. And uh, mostly as a result of his vision impairment, he was, become, he was really having a hard time. And so anyway, here I am, this like young person, like – 
isolation was my second year paper. I was like really into understanding it from like the the applied perspective. Again, my sort of interest in applied research even back then. Like, okay, I'm studying this in school, but like I need to really understand like what does this really look like in yeah. the real world? And so he was like this perfect case study for me. So anyway, I, I visited him weekly for about two years. He was the biggest asshole. <laughs> and really this perfect example of how like people talk about isolation and it is, it's a very important public health issue. It's a very important thing to be aware of, but it does not happen overnight. And it happens for sometimes some pretty good reasons. Um, yeah. oh, so anyway, yeah. it was this, and he loved it. He hated people. He didn't want to yeah. be friends with anybody. He was friends with me, but I would argue that even sometimes he didn't like me because I mm-hmm. bossed him around sometimes. <laughs> but um, so we would have breakfast um, on Wednesday mornings. Um, Did you go out for breakfast? Yeah. I quickly oh. realized we needed to go out because his apartment was kind of gross. Yeah. And he also just liked to get out. But he needed a lot of help walking because he couldn't see. And he, like, didn't really have very many services. He refused, like, every service anybody ever tried to give him because he didn't trust people. He had a lot of paranoia related to his vision loss, which makes sense. Somebody's coming into your apartment to clean your bathroom and you can't see them. Yeah. That's really hard. So anyway, so he started to kind of trust me. So we would walk to this diner. He lived over by, like, Northeastern and stuff. But anyway, we would walk to this diner and have breakfast and – we did that for a couple of years. and that, But occasionally it turned into more than that. Like he would need somebody to like pay his phone bill, like not pay it out of like, but like help him write the check yeah. or help mm-hmm. him call in yeah. and give the account number, that kind of thing. So anyway, it was always this like rub because I wasn't really supposed to be doing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if I didn't do it, so nobody else was going to yeah. do it. And he was going to get like evicted and the phone would get turned off. And mm-hmm. that was like his only lifeline. So anyway, it was really a, a very interesting relationship yeah, that I had yeah. with him. And... And really, I think a very important sort of piece of my journey in gerontology because it sort of was like I'm reading about isolation and I'm like, oh, yeah, we got to really do something about these isolated people. And then I meet Richard and I'm like, he don't want anybody to do anything about his isolation. (laughs) He wants to be alone. This guy is grumpy and he's had a hard life and he just wants to ride out into the sunset eating pork chops and coffee ice cream, which is what he loved to eat. And I would would help him buy it at the grocery store on our way home from um, breakfast. That we ended that relationship, and I in recent years have followed up. Anyway, he he passed. He ended up in a, going to a nursing home. Oh yeah, um, which was good for him, I think. And side note, this was really also a very in <laughs> a very interesting thing for me. So while we were friends, so he used to live in New York City. Like that's where he like spent most of his adult years in in Manhattan. And he was always talking about Manhattan. He was always wishing he could go back there because everything was a grid. And he would know. He would know. Mm-hmm. Even if he couldn't see, he would know, yeah. like, where he lived in his his apartment. He would know, like, I go two blocks up and two blocks over and that's there's a store there that I can go to. So anyway, he was always talking about it. So one day I go see him and he's not at his apartment. I'm, not, I'm knocking and everything. He's not there and whatever. So I call the organization I volunteer for. And I say, he's not in his thing. I don't know what's going on. Eventually, they get a call from a big hospital in New York City where he has been returned. <laughs> he took himself to South Station, got himself on a bus, took a bus to New York City. Oh my god. Got off that bus in New York City. And he used to live by Columbia. Anyway, all of this I know because of stories he told me, but he ended up like wandering into the street and oh, people god. realized that he couldn't see and so whatever. So people took him, he ended up in the hospital and they Talk about, like, wasted dollars. (laughs) I mean, in the sense that they brought him back to Boston in an ambulance. 
They oh drove. my god. Drove, I just got chills. Drove oh. an ambulance oh up to gosh. Boston. He ended up at Boston Medical Center and they needed someone to pick him up. And they asked me to do it. Because oh. I'm like his only friend. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm just not doing it. I draw the line. Like, I can't. I'm, not, I'm a volunteer. I'm his friend. Yeah. But, like, I can't take that responsibility. Yeah. I'm not interested, whatever. So they put him in a cab from Boston Medical Center back to his apartment. And so anyway, I go see him, like, the following week, thinking he's going to be a disaster. He's going to be, like, all stressed out and upset. He was happier than I've ever seen him <laughs> in his friggin' life that I knew him, which was only a few years. But because – Two things. One, I mean, adventure, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, that never gets old. And two, he spent all this time in a hospital where he had somebody coming mm-hmm. in, asking him how he was doing multiple times a day. Mm-hmm. He got three meals a day, mm-hmm. a warm, dry bed to sleep in, somebody to clean up after him. Yeah. He was loving life in the yeah. hospital. And I think when I think about isolation and I think about why it's so important that example is a very extreme example, but it's really this idea that like somebody's life can be so much better in a hospital mm-hmm. than it is in the community yeah. simply because somebody is prote- being paid to care. <laughs> yeah, And that yeah. I think is really when I think about what, what we can do to solve that problem, that figuring out how to get just people to care yeah. <laughs> a little bit more yeah. is something. So anyway, so he's a person who is no longer with us. Mm-hmm. God rest his grumpy soul. <laughs> I would pour a spirit for him. All right. I did not love him, that's for sure. <laughs> but he was. Well, cheers to Richard. Yeah. yeah. Cheers to Richard. Yeah. Adventurous man. Till the end. <laughs> Till the end. That is so funny. Yeah. Wow, I, that went so well. Mm-hmm. I didn't expect that. Wow. What a great story. That's a great yeah. story. Yeah. Okay. I feel like I mean, that's so probably we, all we. Yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. That's, we've been recording for a while now. So. Yeah. Maybe. I think we got a good balance of academic stuff and your life stuff sure thank you for listening to granddaddy issues this podcast is brought to you by gerontology innovation a consulting company that brings aging expertise to companies that serve the mature market population intro music provided by matt wong a new york city-based guitarist composer and educator If you like what you heard, check out his website, mattwongguitar.com or Instagram, mattwongguitar. My name is Claire Wickersham. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.